Good morning, church family. Grab your Bibles. And the Bible's around the room. It's page 208. We're going to be in Judges 9, 1 through 6. And then we're going to skip to the end because everybody likes the end of the story. 50 through 57. And when I'm finished, we're going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you're going to respond, thanks be to God, because this is the inspired word of God. All right. I think it's interesting that Gavin is going to be preaching on a real bad boy of the Bible when he's such a boy scout. (laughs) So here we go. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-barith. And with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubal, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubal, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. Then we skip and we have little brother saying a few choice words to his older brother and the men of Shechem. And we go down to verse 50. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, A woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, make us humble, and let us never forget to give you the glory, none for ourselves. Open our ears, open our hearts, be with Pastor Gavin, as he brings your word to us this morning, and be with him um, as he goes forth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. 
morning. My sons have never seen that bumper, but they've heard it, and they're terrified of it. So, and so should you. Um, so, uh, my name is Gavin. I'm one of the pastors here, um, and, and a pastor of Living Stones. And as uh, Pastor Kyle said, this is my last sermon as a Sparks pastor, um, and I am grateful. Uh, and at the same time, it's very hard, um, because the, the kingdom of God will always move forward, um, and the kingdom of God moves forward uh, through sacrifice. Uh, and so, like, we see that in our lives as Christians, and, and for me as a Christian, a follower of Jesus, um, this is a hard choice because uh, a pastor named Elliot Grudem once said, uh, to lead the kind of church that you would want to be in. Um, and I know that if I wasn't a pastor here, I would want to be in this church, um, like whether or not I led. But I'm grateful. Um, my legacy is like a servant in the house of a good master uh, with other servants. And to get the chance to see people saved in our church for seven years, to see people's lives transformed, um, marriages healed, actual physical healings happen, people to grow closer to Jesus and then reach out, become leaders um, in their homes and in their community and even at this church. It's such an amazing blessing. Uh, and so if, if you're new here and you're like, man, why is, why is it kind of down today? Probably because we're kind of down today. Like, it's, it's a good day. Um, like, we're excited for what God is going to do through this. Um, even already in Sparks, it's allowed a vacuum to be filled where we're disciples making disciples and more people have risen up into leadership. Uh, in Carson, it means that things can stabilize now and um, they can resume not worrying about whether they're going to exist as a church, but just being the church. Um, but if we're honest, um, we know that, like, we present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice. And that kind of language means sometimes we make good decisions that hurt. Uh, and, uh, but I'm grateful uh, because too many pastors leave a church because of scandal. Uh, too many pastors leave the church because they've done some really stupid things. Um, I've done stupid things every week as a pastor. Um, but I, by God's grace, I've avoided really stupid things. Um, so... Um, and so I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to leave that behind as a legacy. And obviously, like, you know, we'll get to see each other. If you wanted to hang out or see me, like Carson's 20 minutes down the road, like hopefully the Southeast Connector will make that a little bit faster. Uh, and as we kind of turn to the text today and um, resume our study in the Game of Thrones, I mean judges, um, the, uh, we, uh, we see the embodiment of pride. Um, and when I look at Abimelech, who's the guy here, um, I see somebody that looks a lot more like me than I would like. Um, I see someone who is going to be always in the corner of my eye, always trying to get my attention, um, and that I risk, um, like I've always had with me, and I'm going to be bringing with me to Carson, and I'm going to have with me all of my life. Um, and pride is the glorification or lifting up of ourselves at the expense of God and others. So I'll say that again. Pride is the glorification or lifting up of ourselves at the expense of God and others. Pride is one of those tricky words 
that means a lot of things. Like when you like grab your son and you're like, I'm so proud of you. Or like you huddle with your team. You're like, we, we did this. I'm so proud of our accomplishment. That's different than what is being talked about here, which is the glorification or lifting up of ourselves at the expense of God and others. And I've done this. We've done this. And it can destroy us. Um, no one in scripture is condemned um, without pride. Uh, no other sin um, reeks to God as much as pride does. Um, because every other sin, if you humble yourself before God, God forgives you. But if you're proud and you stand in pride before God f- for your life, um, God will not turn his face in kindness towards you. He'll oppose you. Um, and in the long term, if you won't repent, if you won't turn from that pride, he will destroy you. Uh, and uh, God doesn't want to leave us in our pride, so he gives us stories like this one in the Bible as a warning to the destructive nature of pride. And, if, and today, if you hear anything that I say and you're like, man, I feel like this is about me, or this guy's coming against me, or hey, um, the answer is yeah, like the text, like I, I kind of am coming against you because we all struggle with pride. And if in reading this, we don't feel convicted about pride, then we are in grave danger because we're wholly unaware of its influence on our our lives already. Uh, And then even worse, those around us are in real danger because pride is the glorification or lifting up of ourselves at the expense of God and others. Uh, So the main point is that today is about the promises that pride makes, the promises of pride. And so we're going to look at four promises in the text that, that pride makes. The first promise is that pride promises a different God. Because in our pride, we don't want a God that's over us. The second promise that pride makes is pride promises glory at the expense of others. The third promise that pride makes is that pride promises the opposition of God. And the fourth promise that pride makes is that pride promises not to end well. So those are, the, those are the four promises that pride makes. Promises a different God, promises glory at the expense of others, promises the opposition of God himself, and pride promises not to end well. So as we begin in the text, we're actually going to jump a, a little bit before chapter 9 because pride doesn't start in chapter 9, verse 1. It starts in chapter 8, verse 33. So let's read this together. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal bereft their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. So here, the cycle that we've seen in Judges is that every time the, the people are delivered, there's a time of peace, but then they quickly return to their sin and to other gods. But something really significant happens here because the people turn to a very specific god called Baal Bereth, which means the Lord of the Covenant. Uh, and so already... Um, the people are turning to a different God who calls himself the Lord of the covenant and they're making their covenant with him now instead of God. Um, Gideon was a pretty good guy, but he had some faults and one of them was towards the end of his life, he started to lead the people back into idolatry. And here after his death, they wholly abandon any pretense that they're worshiping 
Yahweh, the God of the Bible, and they're instead worshiping a false god, Baal Bereth, which means the Lord of the Covenant. He's a, a fertility god. Um, and this is a problem because Baal Bereth is not able as an idol, as a, a mute stone, to be able to keep any sort of covenant or call people to keep a covenant um, with anybody else. Um, only God can do that. Uh, this is what uh, King Solomon says in 1 Kings before he goes nuts. Um, if you're wondering what I mean, go read 1 Kings. I think it's like 11. Um, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. And so God, the Bible teaches, is the only God that keeps covenant. But they turn to a different God and say, well, we're going to keep our covenant with this different God that promises what we desire. Why would they do this? It's the same reason that we would. It's because when we live in pride, when we live for our pride, it's easier to create and serve a one-dimensional God than the real God of the covenant. Um, so it's sort of like, um, like if you're younger, the video game The Sims, um, or like if you're older, those choose-your-own-adventure books. Like the characters in those video games and books, they're not characters of depth. Like you don't go and play the video game The Sims and say, I just want to know this person. Like, I want to know their hopes, their desires. Like, I want to know about their childhood. Like, I want to know what they like, what they dislike. No, like, you've created a character with very one-dimensional needs, and they serve a one-dimensional purpose that you control. Uh, and it's the same thing with choose-your-own-adventure books. Again, it's not like, oh, man, this choose-your-own-adventure book, this guy that, like, we're adventuring and escaping vipers and stuff with, like, I just want to know more about him. No, like, that's... Like, it's a, a character that serves a purpose. So often, we, when we create an idol, uh, we do it to support our own passions and desires. They're one-trick ponies that support our views and just so happen to condemn those that don't have the same views as ourselves. Um, and you might say, well, well, is that wrong? And I would say, yeah. Um, life is complex, uh, it stands to reason that if life is complex, the creator of life must be complex too. Um, and if this is how your view of God has been formed, then you've been taken in. Any God of your own creation can't save you. Like, I mean, like to, to like a, a weird degree, like you might have different reasons of being here, but why are you in a church if you're going to create your own God to save you? Um, and I would hate for you to find this out the hard way. Like, I would hate to find this out the hard way. The only God who can save us is the covenant-keeping God, the God of the Bible, who shows steadfast love to those who love him. The same God who sent Jesus for our salvation and the Spirit for our sanctification. That's the God that can save us. Worshiping a God that always affirms what you hold dear and never challenges you is easier, but it will end in destruction. Because what you've done is you've created a character of God. Like, Do you know what a character is? Like you go to like a wharf or, or like a carnival and someone draws a picture of you and it like embellishes one feature of yourself, often like the feature that you don't like. Like it's like, oh, it's you, but you've got a big nose or like really giant teeth or, or like big ears or something like that. Um, oftentimes, the idols that we create are a character of the true God. It embellishes one characteristic of who God is, but it ignores some of the other aspects of who he is in its place. And so Baal, Bereth, looks kind of like God. He's a counterfeit. 
and a world full of counterfeit gods, the one thing we know is that we know who the true God is because all the counterfeit gods look a little bit like God. But if we would look at the true God, he is far more complex than any of them. Like the difference between a photographed $100 bill and a real $100 bill with all of its shiny holographs and images and all that fun stuff. So, um, and so be very careful that this doesn't happen to you. Here's how you know. Here's some things to keep an eye out in yourself if you've created a character of God. First, um, if you go around saying, well, I believe in a God of fill in the blank, love, peace, justice, and you always make that your main focus. Uh, I believe in a God of love, and that's what you proclaim all the time. When other people come against you, you say, well, I believe in a God of love. You focused all of your energy on the one aspect of God that allows you to ignore his character in other areas and the commands that he has based on those other aspects that you find less worthy of your attention. Does that mean that in your life, there won't be times that you view one aspect of God as like, wow, this is really speaking to me right now? Of course, but God is a person. Um, And just like any person in any relationship that we're in, if you only devote your energy to one aspect of that person, um, eventually you're not going to be able to have a relationship with them because you don't have a relation with the character. You have a relationship with the character. Um, you, You have embellished them to the point that you can't have a real relationship with them. Second, when you say, I feel like God is like this, without backing up your view in the Bible, you're making stuff up. Um, Like, I I hear that all the time. It's like, well, I feel like God is like this. Show me. Like, show me where that's coming from. And and oftentimes people will then say, ah, you're being judgmental. No, I'm, I'm being scientific. I'm asking you to investigate your claims, to produce proof that God is actually like what you say that he is like. Um, and at this church, we believe that the scriptures show us the character of the true God. And so if, if you have a feeling about how God is, and you can't back it up from scripture before you go out and trumpet what that view is, like bow back gracefully and say, maybe that's not exactly who God is. Um, when you say God has changed his mind on this, or God has matured slash grown or anything like that, the God of the Old Testament is not like Jesus. Um, boy, that sucks. Um, here, here's why. I know humans, and, and uh, the best of humans is capable of the worst of deeds, and the worst human is capable of the best of deeds. And God in the Bible says that his promise that he doesn't destroy us for our sin is based on the fact that he doesn't change. So if you want to go around trumpeting that God can change, you might as well just say God can change and that means he may not love us anymore. Like God can change and therefore we can't trust any of his promises. God can change, so where is justice? Like that's what happens when you say that God changes. Like the scriptures teach that God does not change and because of that, he holds to his promises. So pride promises a different God but God always fulfills his promises and they, are always bl- and they are always good for those who love him. So that's the first point. Notice that before anything, re- like to our eyes, we're like, oh, okay, like they just found a more convenient area of worship. But really what's going on is before this horrendous thing happens in the next part, um, they've already broken covenant with God because a different God suited their pride better. 
So point number two, pride promises glory at the expense of others. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbaal rule over you or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. As mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of the leaders of Shechem and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech for they said, he is our brother. They gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Bereth with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. Note that in this story of murder, their God supports them and finances their campaign. Um, and he went to his father's house at Orpha and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubbaal, 70 men on one stone. Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbaal, was left for he hid himself. So Abimelech goes... And he, he doesn't just murder his brothers, he sacrifices them. When it says that all these people are murdered on one stone, it means they took the money out of the temple of this God, and then they took the brothers to that temple of that God, and they just slaughtered them one by one on the stone of that God. Pride promises glory at the expense of others. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and at Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. And this is where they also make Abimelech king is at one of these worship sites. So we see here what happens. Um, notice too, like Abimelech goes to the city and says, I should be king. Um, and, and says, well, what would be better for me to rule over to you or for these 70 sons to rule over you? But no one has claimed that the 70 sons were going to rule over these people. That's an inference that Abimelech makes himself. And that's often how our pride or how Satan works is he asks a question that's really kind of a half-truth. Abimelech is presenting this option to the city of Shechem and saying, well, which would you rather have, these people to rule over you or me to rule over you? Shechem should have said, uh, neither, like God, like not, not you, but they didn't say that they were going to rule over us either. They have influence, but they aren't claiming to be rulers. Um, but they believe the lie, they endorse him, they give him money, they murder all of these brothers, and they show this, this heinous treachery to the family of Gideon that rescued Israel at this time frame. And uh, here we, we find the fullness of the expression that pride calls us to lift ourselves up at the expense of others. And obviously this is a very extreme example. It would be easy for us to say, I haven't murdered anyone recently. Um, I haven't murdered 70 people. Um, but our pride is evident in our lives based on what our heart's desire is. You see, pride is this, it's this motivating factor. Um, it has to be kind of like, for each and every one of us who are individuals, it has to be kind of factored alongside um, our desires, our gifts, kind of the things that we would go after. Um, and so there, there's a few examples of this. Maybe none of them apply to you. Maybe some of them do. But you've got to keep in mind that the pride augments our character based on who we are. And, and it fits patterns, but it's not a cookie cutter. So, for example, if you desire power, oftentimes this pride will lead you to play politics at work. Uh, and to go after your perceived competition until you're on top. You might do that in overt ways, or it might be kind of this like shadow mission that you have to get things done. Um, because deep down at your core, you want power, and pride is a God that promises you, if you glorify yourself at the expense of others, I can take you there. I'll take you there. Um, so if you seek power, that might be how it goes. If you desire control, 
um, you will manipulate those around you until you are the king of your relationships. So if like in your marriage, you're like, I want to, like if there's something in you, maybe, maybe it's not even formed as words. It's just a subconscious feeling you have that you say, I want to be in control. Um, then pride is going to be that motivator to help you worm your way into the control of that relationship. Or that could play out at work again too, or in a friendship group, um, that if, if you want control, pride can take you into this area where you manipulate those around you. Uh, if you desire approval, what will happen with pride is you will contort and distort yourself to win the affections and praises of others, which is sad because then people can't actually have relationship with who you are. Um, but then additionally, when it doesn't work, because inevitably it won't work, um, you'll destroy them and find somebody else. Um, and so that's how pride will work if we're seeking out approval. Or if we desire comfort, the greatest accomplishments that we will be us pursuing pleasures and experiences and joys, all to the glorification of ourselves. Um, but then we have the weight of those things we've pursued overwhelming us, both in keeping them and going after them. And then we get closer to the end of our life and we're like, yeah, but, but where are my relationships? Like, where are the people? People um, are uncomfortable. People are hard to be around, um, but people, uh, uh, people in God are the two relationships that humans have been created to live in, relationship with God and relationship with others. So if we contrast this with what Jesus has put forward for us, Jesus said that those that wish to be great will be a servant to all. Our pride tells us that the only way to be great is to make others serve us. Jesus is the greatest of all. He became a servant for all. And for us, he calls us to follow him, to become a servant to others, because in humility is true greatness. In humility, we become like the servant king of kings. Um, humility fulfills our needs far more than pride promises that it can. Uh, even though humbling ourselves before God means that we ditch our pride, our self-glorification, and we seek to glorify Christ and to love and to serve others. So not following Christ in this is to promise God's opposition. Like if you're looking for signs of God's existence, there's two I can immediately think of in the Bible. One, giving, weirdly enough. Two, be proud um, and see what happens. <laughs> because God promises that he will oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. And we see this in uh, sections, the next section, verses 7 through 21. I'm going to read this whole thing in its entirety, and then we're going to go back to it. So verse 7. When it was told to Jotham, the youngest brother who escaped, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my abundance by which God and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, you come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. 
Now, therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jerubbaal and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian, and you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jerubbaal and with the house of this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Smart man. He's like, all right, like, peace. Like, I dropped the mic. I'm running away because you're going to kill me otherwise. So, um, he goes to the top of this mountain during this coronation. They're celebrating down there like, oh, we have a king. And Mount Gerizim is where God gave the blessings of what it means to follow him and to be in covenant with the true God. But because they've turned their back on God and because of their cruelty to Gideon's family, Jotham goes up to the mountain of blessing and pronounces just curses. So and it gives this really powerful story to, to kind of relay the, uh, the point. So if we break this down a little in our mindset, the trees of Tahoe, like the Tahoe forest, start looking around for a king. And uh, they went to the oak tree and said, you be king. And the oak's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, they went up to, uh, like, we don't have fig trees here. So let's say they went up to the apple tree and said, you be the king over us. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to leave my position. Uh, they went to the grapevine and said, you be king over us. And they said, no, I'm not going to do that. And then the kings of Tahoe went up to the sagebrush and be like, you be king over us. <laughs> so, and the sagebrush said, yes, come under my cover. Like, I would love to shield you, trees of Tahoe. Like, of course I'll be able to protect you. And the trees said, there's no fire hazard with you, is there? And the sagebrush said, no, of course not. Like, I, I never catch on fire. Um, that's what's happening here. Like, and so Jotham says, uh, okay, look, if this is what God wants, if, if Abimelech is supposed to be your king, then, then God bless you. Like, I, I'm... I'm angry because my brothers are dead and I'm hunted down for my life. But if this is what God wants, then cool. But he says, but I hope you get what you deserve if, if not. Like, and, he, and he uses language that's beyond hope. He uses what we would call a curse. He curses them and says, just like a sagebrush would catch fire and cause a forest fire through all the forest, like my curse on you is that you would be caught on fire and Abimelech would be caught on fire as well and that you would both be destroyed. And then he runs away. Um, so pride promises the opposition of God. First off, how comforting is it to see people in the Bible cry out for justice? that this is a, a man who is deeply hurting, who's lost most of his family, and he sees injustice and he screams aloud about it. Um, and inferred, because it's in the Bible, God saw that injustice too. We need to know that even when justice doesn't come quickly, like it's about to in this passage, that God hears the cries of the oppressed and he will oppose the proud. Um, and as we come before God, we're invited to humble ourselves before him, to be honest about our status with him, to rejoice in the difference between us and him and the salvation that he gives us. And Jotham experiences that as well. He's not a king, he's not a judge, but he gets to be the mouthpiece of God recorded for all history and he escapes with his life because God has favor on him.
And more than that, God has heard his curse. So this leads to the final promise of pride. Pride promises not to end well. We're not going to read all of this because it's, it's bloody and gruesome. Um, up behind me is a picture of modern art of uh, Abimelech. Um, this guy's art is intense and, and current. It's, a, it's something that he's still building. But this is the depiction of him salting the fields uh, after his uh, destruction of the town of Shechem. Notice Abimelech is not a follower of Yahweh. He's a Canaanite king. He styled himself as such. The people around him are, are pagans that he has brought for his own purposes. Um, that this pride has led to this section of scripture reading mostly just like any Canaanite excerpt of conquering and conquest of this time. Perhaps the weirdest part about it is that you'd expect if one party is fighting the other, that one of them would conquer. And in this story, neither of them do because God is going to fulfill Jotham's curse. The other thing is that like, you're not rooting for either party. They're both horrible, scumbag people. And so the only good results of this story, if they're not going to repent, is for both of them to die. And so here's what happens. Abimelech rules over Israel for three years. He doesn't pretend. He's not pretending to be a judge. A judge is just a deliverer sent by God that acknowledges God's kingship. Abimelech is a king, a self-styled king who rules over Israel as a tyrant for three years. God sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And so pretty quickly, treachery begets treachery. And so now there's some infighting. There's some covert and overt thing happening. The covert thing is that the leaders of Shechem are responsible for the crime in the city and in the surrounding mountainside, but they're not telling Abimelech that. So they're causing Abimelech trouble, but they're not being blatant about it because it's a covert rebellion. Then in verses 26 through 29, um, someone arises to challenge Abimelech. And Gael, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the field and gathered grapes and threw a party. Uh, and then in 28, Gael, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech, and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal, and is not Zebul his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand. Then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. And so it's another boastful young man, also the son of a slave, just like Abimelech is. Um, they share that in common. Um, the Bible is kind of crude when it says, serve the men of Hamor. Hamor means donkey or ass. So I'll let you interpret that. <laughs> it's on purpose. Like the Bible, the Bible is saying that Gale's, Gale has gall. He, he has a lot of gall in what he's doing in his own treachery. Uh, and so basically, Zabel is really offended and insulted. And so he comes up against Gale. He gives... Um, uh, Abimelech, the fire he needs to defeat Gale, and he wins. And then in verses 42 through 49, Abimelech in his pride, arrogance, and violence utterly destroys Shechem. Um, so in verse 42, on the following day, the people went out into the field, and Abimelech was told, uh, he took, this is a change of language before it said the warriors went out, and now it says the people went out. So this is farmers and families. Um, he took his people, divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city and rose against them and killed them. His company rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city and killed them. 
Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it. He raised the city and sowed it with salt. And then they all hid in the tower and they burned the tower down. Uh, and so Abimelech and his pride and violence destroys Shechem because when pr- pride is offended, there's no mercy from pride. Like prideful people don't have mercy. Uh, and his idol, his desire is being attacked, and so he responds wrathfully and vengefully. And But with that said, this looks horrible, but remember that all of these people stood up and applauded and paid for the murder of 70 people. Uh, God set this up um, because he does judge pride. He will oppose pride. Then in verses 50, uh, 52 through 55, Abimelech goes to destroy another city because wrath can't be assuaged um, when it's done in pride. And by the way, a side note when we read Abimelech's story is don't surround yourself with treacherous friends. Um, if you surround yourself with treacherous friends, you need to take a good look at your life because it probably means that you are a treacherous person. Um, treachery begets treachery. So in verse 52, Abimelech came up to another tower and fought against it and drew near to the door to burn it with fire. And a certain woman, just a lady with an upper millstone, big old stone, um, was on the tower and was like, what if I throw this? Um, And she throws it and she hits Abimelech. Um, And so it's kind of a miracle. It's kind of a divine providence thing. Like, like, do we doubt that this lady would throw a stone? No, like, it's not that big of a deal. It's a 20-pound stone. But imagine standing on top of a tower and accurately hitting somebody, even if it's like a four-story tower. Like, imagine, like, throwing it and with accuracy crushing somebody in the head. Like, that's how you know that God has it out for you. Um, <laughs> so, um, and it's crushed his skull. Then he cu- And this is what... Like, this is what I haven't done research on. How do all these people in the Bible get their skulls crushed and then cry out for somebody to kill them while their skulls are crushed? Like, I thought the skull crushing was a pretty permanent and effective way of quickly killing somebody. The Bible indicates that it's not. Um, So... Uh, then he called quickly to the young man as armor bearer. This is how armor bearers work in the scripture. Imagine all these warriors are like the golfers, and these are the caddies. So this this caddy like runs up with all the master swords, like is like, do you want the nine iron sword or do you want to use the wedge? Like, what do you want to do? And, and he says, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. And his young men thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Bimlech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Um, when, when the evil perish, the righteous rejoice. Uh, and when this man's wrath is put to an end, the people go home because there's no more battle to have because it was his fight, not God's fight. Um, God hates Abimelech. Um, and it's clear in the scripture. Look at what he did. Abimelech is one of the most prideful men in the Bible that you'll find. Um, he makes sure a humble person kills him with the most humble tool available. A woman with a stone. That's going to be what kills you. And God says, Abimelech, you want to kill your brothers on a stone? I'm going to make sure you're killed by a stone. Um, Abimelech was worried that people would know he was killed by a woman, and God made particular attention to make sure it was in the Bible. Uh, And so the main thing that we learn from Abimelech is if a lady is throwing a stone at you from a tower, move. Uh, so, um, So he dies in humiliation. And I mean, like... A fitting end. 
And, and just a reminder to us, we want to be the hero of our fantasies. We are the hero of our fantasies, the mighty man of our thought life. If we're operating in pride, pride promises to never end well. Treachery begets treachery. We need to keep a watchful eye on our lives because if something that is started in pride is repented of, we can escape a fate that is brought on ourselves. And this leads us to the conclusion, um, which has more hope in it than you think. Verse 56, thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubal. So God is faithful to all of his promises, even his curses. So like none of us are that faithful. Like even if we're like, we're pretty faithful people. Look, I, I know, like you've made a, a, a covenant, a curse to your children. You're like, if you don't do this, I swear I'm taking this away from you. And you know you're not going to take that away. Like, your only hope is in their obedience now, because if you take that away, your life is going to become 10 times worse. Um, like, you know, like, you know, like, whether or not you consider yourself a faithful person, if you actually acted out all of the things you've muttered on your breath when you're driving home or about your boss at work, like, like, thank God you're not as faithful as God in fulfilling your promises. <laughs> like, um, because it wouldn't go good for anyone. But God, because he's holy, he's right, he's good, he never changes. There's not a single thing that he says or, or brings to pass that he doesn't fulfill. That's his promises and that's his curses. Now, God has put a curse on all of us through the law. Um, that when we don't follow God, when we live in our pride, when we don't keep his commandments, we are under a curse. And the way that God chooses to save us is to cause the curse to fall on himself. Uh, this is what Galatians says. Galatians 3 says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. But the good news is this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Um, you might think like, oh man, this is just another dark story of the Bible. But the Bible is a serious reminder of when we pursue our own self-salvation and our own pride, our, our way is going to end in destruction. But in order that we would be rescued from destruction, Christ himself redeemed us by becoming a curse for us, by hanging on a tree, by dying the death that we deserved. And then he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death, so that all who don't follow Abimelech in his way of pride, but follow Christ in his way of humility, and follow Christ as the Savior and say, save me, God, I need your salvation. Their way doesn't end in death, but in eternal life. Let's pray. God, you are worthy. We thank you that you are a saving God who keeps covenant with all those who love you. It says elsewhere that you punish those um, to the third and fourth generation that despise you, but you keep loving promise and covenant to thousands of generations of those that love you and keep your promises. And it's crazy, that was in the time of Moses. Um, we haven't even had thousands of generations happen since the time of Moses. Um, you continue to keep your faithfulness and your love to those that follow you. And we pray that today we would trust you 
God, like we thank you that probably for everybody in this room, we have not seen the kind of consequences that have arisen out of Abimelech's life, but we pray that when we come to the communion table, we can repent, repent of our pride now. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know who you are, we pray that, God, I, I pray that today is the day that you show your loving kindness to them and that they would trust you and that they would come to the table with the rest of us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.